Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. Whatever the criticism, one thing is clear. The attack on wheat was really, in many ways, an attack on the character and credibility of its co-founders, Craig and Mark Kilberger. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. Listen as Tafik Rangwala takes a look back at the Kilberger brothers, while also demystifying some of the bigger criticisms of the organization, from me to we, to its culture, to real estate policy, to dispel some of the myths at the center of the CSSG controversy. Good enough is not good enough. As the pandemic firmly took hold, We Charity was unexpectedly presented with what seemed like a -a one-of-a-kind opportunity to help when the government came calling with the Canada Student Services Grant, CSSG, program. The CSSG was supposed to provide grants to tens of thousands of students to work at nonprofits during the summer of 2020. The goal of the program was to help students who couldn't find work and struggling nonprofits trying to address the needs of Canadians during COVID. The CSSG unfortunately came to an abrupt end before anyone was helped, and the government never managed to get it off the ground. Its demise, however, turned out to be just the beginning of a firestorm that decimated We Charity. Once heralded as a homegrown success story, We Charity suddenly became the subject of a lot of negative attention across 2020 and 2021. At the kinder end of the spectrum, critics labeled the organization convoluted, complicated, and superficial. Some went further, calling it a cult and wishing its downfall. Others found its complexity inherently suspect, particularly for a charity and decided there had to be some funny business going on. Whatever the criticism, one thing is clear. The attack on we was really, in many ways, an attack on the character and credibility of its co-founders, Craig and Mark Kilberger. The story of we and the story of the Kilbergers are inextricably linked. I have a unique perspective on both because I've known the Kilbergers since they were young, and I was a We Charity board member. I went to high school with Mark, stayed in touch with the brothers over the years, and have watched with interest and often amazement as they disrupted and more recently upended the charitable sector. From the beginning, Craig and Mark were young men in a hurry. They brought the zeal and ambition of a Silicon Valley startup to the charity sector. They wanted to generate impact through innovation and push for systemic change. And they wanted to do it at breakneck speed with as little interference as possible. Over 25 years, this approach led to breathtaking results, but it could also be nerve-wracking. I came to understand through the events of the past two years that their drive to always do and deliver more is both their best asset and their Achilles heel. Looking back, I can see that perfectionism to a fault 
was in their DNA from day one. It is perhaps best captured for me in an experience I had working with Mark on a school project more than 30 years ago. It was a ninth grade class presentation, and we got together one Saturday to do the research, fill a poster board with cutout images, and prepare talking points. We had been at it all day. 14-year-old me thought we were done and proposed, as I probably still would today, that we head out to get pizza. Mark looked at me puzzled and said he thought we were just getting started. Mark, I said, it's totally good enough. Without skipping a beat, he responded, you go ahead then. For me, good enough is not good enough. Something Mark and I had in common is that we each had only one sibling, a kid brother, approximately six years younger. At first, the relationship seemed comparable, deep affection with a healthy dose of annoyance. I tried to dodge my pesky brother whenever I could, and Mark might have occasionally thrown Craig into the pool against his will. The comparisons probably end there. The Kilberger brothers have outperformed the Rangwala brothers based on most metrics, other than knowing how to relax. There, we are more talented, and they fail miserably. Today, Mark, and especially Craig, are undeniably famous. They've been granted many honorary doctorates, 25 between the two of them, shared stages with international luminaries, appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show, received the Order of Canada, and been nominated multiple times for the Nobel Peace Prize. But I can still easily call to mind my overachieving high school classmate and his shy younger brother, who had a noticeable speech impediment and trouble looking me in the eye. In my wildest dreams, I never would have imagined that boy would become the standard bearer of a global empowerment movement. In 2017, the Kilbergers asked me to join We Charity's U.S. Board of Directors because they felt it would be useful to have a lawyer experienced in litigation and crisis management as the charity continued to grow rapidly. I was honored and said yes. I did not, of course, expect my skill set to come in quite so handy. My tenure on the board, which ended when I stepped down to write this book in the summer of 2021, always felt like an adrenaline rush. I never knew what I would get when I showed up for board meetings. Things happen fast in the we world. Board members might arrive expecting to hear about progress on an elementary school being built in Kenya, only to be briefed instead on a proposal to start a university called We College. We figured out that communities were only going to allow young people, especially girls, to go to university if there was one available locally. So there's no point stopping at high schools, Craig explained, as though he were proposing something as simple as changing a light bulb. Talk of a medical clinic would quickly morph into an idea for a hospital, a proposal to add a subject to We Schools programming in North America and the UK would become a vision for a whole new online curriculum. A brainstorming session about using technology to advance service learning would result in a partnership with Microsoft to broadcast communal learning 
to communities around the world. And even as all this was happening, creative social business ideas, whether in the form of fair trade chocolate and coffee or handmade artisan jewelry, were designed, developed, and implemented at a pace that left me amazed. The Kilberger's work ethic, around-the-clock action with an emphasis on world-class content and performance at every turn, set the tone across the organization. For more than two decades, Mark and Craig logged hundreds of days per year traveling the globe to build partnerships and launch bold initiatives. They appeared in small-town Canadian classrooms, mud huts in Ethiopia, boardrooms in New York and London, conference halls in Davos, a lodge in the Amazon rainforest, and everywhere in between. The brothers never stopped running and had limited patience for those who wanted to walk. Members of WE's senior leadership team, many of whom had been involved with the charity for almost two decades, were just as fast-moving and were the hardest-working group of people I have ever encountered. Coming from a partner at a large corporate law firm in New York, that is saying something. Many WE Charity employees were prepared to give everything in terms of both inspiration and perspiration because they believed that was the recipe for changing the world for the better. WE was more than just a place where they worked. The organization was the product of decades of sleepless nights and sacrifices. The leadership team, and most WE staff generally, felt a sense of responsibility to their colleagues who had become like a second family. That core group would stand by WE and the Kilbergers throughout the trials to come. When Dan Kuzmicki, the head of Enterprise Services, started with WE in 2005, he was one of only about 20 employees. I met Craig my second day on the job and his laptop was physically on fire, Dan recalled. He had graduated just three days earlier from a database administration program and applied to an online posting. He had no idea who Craig was when he heard his voice calling out from a nearby meeting room. Craig's laptop power brick was sparking. That started our friendship. Very little has changed. There's something always on fire. Dan described himself as a problem solver and Craig as a visionary. I'm very focused on what's going to be delivered in the next day, week, month, or year, while Craig is on another plane of existence. He's thinking, you know, how does this action or product change the world? Countless staff have told me that working at WE was the most fun they ever had and that they relished being part of what we all viewed as a transformative movement. For others, however, the ceaseless demands resulted in quick burnout and the drive for excellence felt overbearing. Dan acknowledged the drawbacks, which included not being compensated for all that extra time and stress. But he noted that friends in other industries did not have quality of life in their work anywhere close to what I have. Those friends, he said, were doing mind-numbing work with significantly more money, but just not happy at all. 
Employees often joked that working at Wii in the early days offered less sleep and less pay than other available options. But if you were the right fit for the organization, you could find benefits that went well beyond the bi-weekly paycheck. Dan described it as an adventure that tests your limits. We're always doing something so crazy and innovative and just shit that you don't get to work on anywhere else. What I love about the organization is that we're always doing something just beyond what we're capable of. My former fellow board member, David Stillman, knows this all too well. Before he joined the board, he was a WE employee and was responsible for much of the charity's expansion into the U.S. He was integral in introducing WE schools programming into American schools and in helping stage WE days in Seattle, Chicago, and his native Minnesota. He is the type of person who likes taking on huge challenges. He is also never short on opinions, which he tends to share openly and sharply. Working at WE was the most fun you could have, David said, but working with Mark and Craig is hard, if not at times impossible. When I relayed this to Mark and Craig, they both nodded. That's fair, Craig conceded. Mark and I are driven and have devoted much of our lives to building we from the ground up. So we can be exacting and intense, and that can sometimes make us difficult people to work with. I've often thought that the brothers had the confidence, charisma, and driving leadership of Apple founder Steve Jobs. And I mean that comparison as it is intended. The Kilbergers are impatient visionaries, always pushing for change and striving to generate impact through innovation. But they can also alienate people, just as Jobs did at Apple. Like Craig and Mark, Steve Jobs inspired a kind of messianic devotion in some and a deep suspicion in others. He was persuasive and brilliant, but not very open to criticism. One huge difference, though, is that Jobs learned how to get out of the way and let his team design iPhones. The Kilbergers, by contrast, constantly remained immersed in all aspects of the organization, no matter how big it got. Tall Poppies. There is no question that what the brothers built is impressive and rare in Canada. They pioneered service learning curricula, educational campaigns, and a celebration of service to inspire a generation of young people to become active and engaged citizens. Truly a Canadian success story by any measure. At the same time, their need for speed and their resolute faith in their own judgment has occasionally, in my estimation, come at the expense of sober second thought. Whether they are dealing with layoffs, demands for information, or media misstatements, they sometimes react with a fervor that seems out of proportion. The same intensity that lifted We Charity to great heights also made the landing much bumpier. The Kilberger's foibles, however, don't satisfactorily explain the speed and ferocity with which they were attacked in the wake of the CSSG controversy. Instead, I believe the explanation lies in the fact that the brothers have always aroused a certain degree of suspicion and wariness. 
When they got caught in the crosshairs of a political scandal, that suspicion morphed into outright mistrust in many quarters. I have never had any reason to doubt the Kilberger's sincerity, but in writing this book, I've tried to put my finger on why so many Canadians seem quick to accept efforts to call their integrity into question. I think in large part, it's because the brothers sometimes come off as almost too sincere and devoted to their cause, projecting a pureness so excessive that it invites skepticism. People are comfortable with go-getters who work hard, play hard, but the Kilbergers only work hard. We expect everyone to have at least a few indulgences or guilty pleasures. But as best as I can tell, the Kilbergers have no discernible vices. They don't drink, smoke, gamble, overeat, or get noise complaints from the neighbors. And trying to get Craig to utter a curse word is a game you will lose. I have tried for my own amusement many times. Mark can be persuaded to swear if sufficiently provoked. Add to that their somewhat evangelical speaking style, reminiscent of preachers calling the flock to a cause, and it is understandable that some people who don't really know them might wonder if they are on the level. And then there's the impression that the Kilbergers never turn off. Yes, they do go to bed at some point, but every waking hour is spent promoting the work of we. I say this without derision. I admire them for it. As the founders of a charity, Craig and Mark have always felt they bore the responsibility for building and growing the organization, for generating ideas and coming up with the next big thing, and of course for bringing in the resources and supporters. You cannot grow a charity from your parents' basement into a national and even global force without staying on message, making requests, and working every angle to secure the support necessary to change the world. Still, it is very hard to have a conversation with them about any aspect of their lives without them bringing it back to we. Whether seen as a single-minded focus or a form of perennial salesmanship, this trait is clearly off-putting to some and has caused those people to question the brothers' authenticity. All the above qualities were at times on display during the Kilbergers' two rounds of testimony before parliamentary committees into the CSSG debacle. As an insider, I felt they answered questions thoughtfully, mixing a sincere desire to speak the truth with a measured degree of combativeness when presented with false statements and loaded questions. But to many, they came off as wooden, overly rehearsed, and defensive. And let's face it, Craig and Mark are no longer wide-eyed teenagers encouraging fellow young people to take action. They are now two relatively privileged, middle-aged white men defending a charity that had been treated unfairly at a time when many people are unsympathetic to hearing about unfairness from middle-aged white men. On the other hand, a significant number of people I interviewed for this book described the criticism of the Kilbergers 
and the attack on We Charity more generally as a classic example of tall poppy syndrome. This is the tendency to disparage a cut down those whose achievements make them stand out from the crowd on the theory that their success feeds their egotism or vanity. In a July 2020 article in McLean's magazine, Scott Gilmore, the conservative-leaning founder and CEO of the charity Building Markets, noted, Canadians dislike tall poppies, and they are no more conspicuous targets than Mark and Craig Kilberger. Gilmore posited that it is their relentless cheerfulness and the way they whip up a cloying meringue of empathy with an almost religious fervor that has turned the public mood against them. Former Prime Minister Kim Campbell also told me that she thought the way Craig and Mark were treated was emblematic of tall poppy syndrome and a willingness to turn on people if they're getting too big. This was also the opinion of Mark Burry, a former journalist with the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail, and the author of a self-published article titled The Attempted Murder of the Kilbergers. In Burry's view, there's a lot of resentment in Canada about success. He believes that the Kilbergers' habit of hobnobbing with international celebrities while paying little attention to local reporters or the Toronto elite fueled a desire to take them down a peg. I think Canadians really do have tall poppy syndrome, he told me. I get it. If you are a Canadian charity struggling to arrange meetings with low-level government officials or raise enough money to keep the doors open, it must be irksome to see pictures of the Kilbergers hanging out with Oprah Winfrey, sharing yak butter tea with the Dalai Lama, dining with Richard Branson, visiting the home of Sheryl Sandberg, and traipsing the Great Rift Valley with likes of Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, and Natalie Portman. The news that Finance Minister Bill Murnow visited We Charity's international projects with his family or that the Prime Minister's wife recorded podcasts for the organization's mental health initiatives might lead a cynic to assume that the Kilbergers were tugging on some cleverly hidden strings. The bottom line is that for a subset of Canadians who had watched the Kilbergers with a mix of amazement and jealousy, the CSSG controversy and ensuing avalanche of criticism provided the aha moment they had long hoped for. Just as I suspected, too good to be true. Then Schadenfreuder kicked in. The Real Brothers From my vantage point, it has been painful to watch the Kilbergers go from media darlings to pariahs attacked by the same pundits and politicians who once sought their company and praised their achievements not just because much of the criticism is wrong or unfair, but because it glosses over the fact that they have given everything to try to empower young people and improve lives. To use a sports analogy, they leave it all on the field every time. Even if you disagree with them or dislike them, it's hard to miss the nobility in that. 
And there's another side to the Kilbergers that I think many Canadians do not see. In an effort to help explain them, and less so to try to redeem them in anyone's eyes, I hope to paint a picture of who Craig and Mark really are and describe some of the factors that have shaped them. The Kilbergers I know are polite and deferential, good listeners, and generous almost to a fault. They are quick to send birthday presents to children and to offer invites to Wee Day. They take a genuine interest in the good deeds of the young people who look up to them. As one example, 15-year-old twins Ashley and Emma Dezus fondly remembered meeting Mark several years ago at the now-closed Meadowee store in Toronto's Eaton Center. They were in grade five at the time, and their mom had heard he would be there signing books. We were just like totally kind of fangirls, Ashley recalled. When it was their turn to get their book signed, they wanted to tell Mark all about their involvement with We. But he had a line of people waiting and asked them to come back later. They did, and he spent the next two hours with them as they excitedly described all the things they had been doing to make change happen, from collecting canned goods for the food bank to raising awareness about the dwindling bee population. At the end of the conversation, Mark extended an invitation. I remember him saying, Oh my gosh, you guys are so inspirational. You are my favorite pair of twins. We are probably the only ones he knew, Ashley said. And then he's like, hey, I have this staff meeting coming up, and you guys are, like, so amazing. Would you like to speak at it? And we were like, um, yeah. We Charity got its start as Free the Children in 1995. Craig, like any ordinary 12-year-old, was flipping through the local paper, looking for the comics, when he noticed the story of Iqbal Masih a Pakistani laborer of the same age who was murdered for advocating for children's rights. Craig remembers feeling shocked. In school, I had learned about the American Civil War and the Underground Railroad, he told a magazine in 1999. But I thought slavery was something out of the past, that it had been abolished. Inspired to do something about it, he photocopied the article researched child labor around the world, and gave a talk to his seventh-grade class. His passion convinced several classmates and his brother to join his cause. Free the Children was focused on eradicating child labor and helping children in the developing world. But it also had a broader underlying mandate to tell kids that they didn't need to wait to grow up before making a difference. They could be catalysts for change right now. What I remember most from those days was how many people, nonprofits and community leaders, told me, often in so many words, that kids can't make a difference. When I was 12, I called one charity and asked how I could help support their mission and they told me to get my parents' credit card, Craig said. I wanted to prove to all of them and to all the other young people that they were wrong. Kids could make a difference. 
The organization had lofty goals, but humble roots. Free the Children was initially run out of Craig and Mark's parents' living room. There was pizza, pop, and a fax machine that got a lot of mileage. And when they needed all hands on deck, kids would camp out in the yard overnight. But even this modest start would not have been possible without the considerable support of their parents, who encouraged the boys' convictions and instilled in them the importance of helping people who had less. Good teachers have to have a strong work ethic. They work much harder than most people realize, Craig told me. My parents were no different. They pushed to instill that work ethic in us. And while they were always supportive, they also believed that facing challenges is an essential part of learning and growing up. They'd say, the only failure in life is not trying. So often that I think it should have been painted on our walls. Fred and Teresa Kilberger are atypical Canadian success stories who passed on their values to their children. They also passed along considerable wealth, which afforded the brothers the privilege of focusing on their philanthropic interests rather than trying to earn top dollars in the private sector. But they are not old money. Fred and Teresa both came from humble backgrounds and had experienced firsthand what it means to do without. Born in Windsor, Ontario, Teresa was the second youngest of four children. When she was only nine, her father died, leaving her mother, Mimi, to provide for the family. Having just an eighth grade education, Mimi cleaned houses to pay the bills. But work was sometimes hard to come by. And for a period of time, the whole family lived in a tent. Teresa's mother was a force of nature, and she was determined to give her kids a better life. One day, Mimi read about a fire that had destroyed all the academic records at a local high school. According to family lore, she saw in this brief news article an opportunity to change her family's fortunes. She bought a typewriter and taught herself to touch type late at night and on weekends. Then she applied for a secretarial job at one of Windsor's biggest employers, the Chrysler Corporation. Only high school graduates were eligible to be hired, but Mimi had a plan. She claimed her records had been lost in that school fire. Because her typing skills were so good, no one ever guessed that she had not started high school, let alone finished it. She became a valued employee at Chrysler and was eventually made the head of the secretarial department. Mimi's example taught Teresa that determination and hard work could improve her life. But she also learned that people sometimes get knocked down and need compassion and a helping hand. As an adult, she became a teacher. But she left the profession for a few years to run an outreach center helping homeless youth escape drugs, alcoholism, and prostitution. When she went back to teaching, she focused her efforts on students with special needs. That was another value mom drilled into us. Every single person is worthy and has potential, even if the world may not see it at first, Mark said. 
During her childhood, my mother knew too well what it was like to worry about your next meal. She grew up a person of deep faith and always said that it was incumbent on us to share and help others achieve their potential. Teresa's concern for others remains strong today. In speaking with her for this book, it was hard to get her to focus on how the events of the last year had affected her and Fred. In the two-hour conversation, she never spoke about her own pain. Instead, she focused on how disappointed she was that no one seemed to be thinking about how the scandal was affecting the lives of We Charity's beneficiaries. Her constant refrain was the biggest loss was to the children. And yet, unsurprisingly, for an 80-year-old mother and grandmother who has watched her children pilloried in the press, she was angry. Partway through the conversation, Teresa pulled out a box filled with newspaper clippings, articles, op-eds, and letters to the editor, as well as copies of emails and letters of support she had received all from the last year. I have three more boxes upstairs, she said. One article she referred to several times in the conversation profiled a 13-year-old boy in Pemberton, B.C. Sam had become so stressed about climate change that he couldn't sleep at night, but he found opportunities to take action through his school's week club, and in the process, he also found his purpose. He saw that he could make a difference, that he had something to contribute, Teresa explained. And he is, of course, only one example. It breaks my heart that other children will not be able to access those opportunities. In her own act of defiance, she created a library of photo albums to showcase 25 years of hard work. I want to give one to all the families of the staff to remind parents how proud they should be of what their sons or daughters have done, she said. They should all be proud of their children like I'm proud of my sons. Like Teresa, Fred Kilberger grew up in a family that struggled financially. His father, Peter, was a German-Romanian immigrant who had come to Canada during the Great Depression. Although he was a skilled cook and a talented musician who played eight instruments, he arrived with nothing and knew only a few words of English. He boxed to survive, then pooled his winnings with earnings he made working as a servant in Toronto's upscale Rosedale neighborhood. Eventually, he was able to save enough to open a corner store in the bustling St. James Town area. In 20 years, that store closed exactly one day so the family could visit Niagara Falls. Fred's childhood and a religious upbringing taught him the importance of giving back. Like Teresa, he took those lessons of service, resiliency, and hard work and became a teacher. In his spare time, he volunteered with the Big Brother program. And one summer, he even went to France to work at a home for adults with developmental disabilities. Fred and Teresa shared many values and they passed those on to their boys. Their own childhood struggles 
heightened their parental instincts, making them want more for their children, a better education, and more security. They were determined to do what they could to give Mark and Craig every advantage and opportunity. We didn't make much money back then as teachers, Teresa told Canadian Living Magazine in 2019, but we valued the importance of having a home. So instead of choosing to have a large wedding, we put the money we'd save towards a down payment on our first home. That home cost them $40,000 in 1975. Two years later, after renovations, they sold it for twice what they paid. This, they quickly realized, was their path to financial freedom. Because they were teachers, Fred and Teresa had summers off, so they devoted that time to building their new real estate hobby into an investment opportunity. Over the years, they bought, fixed up, and resold almost 20 homes, creating sizable wealth along the way. It was a true family affair. While other kids were picking out their camps for the summer or planning vacations, our family would drive around in our station wagon looking at homes for sale, Craig said in one interview. When the boys were old enough, they learned to paint and hang wallpaper. And as they grew into young men, they acquired more complex skills, such as how to install towel or put up drywall. Some of these skills came in handy when we began to build schools in countries around the world. Toronto's booming real estate market also allowed Teresa and Fred to help the charity take flight. Eventually, they even moved out of the family home in Thornhill to let Free the Children take it over as a makeshift office. Later, proceeds from the sale of that home were used to buy a building in Cabbage Town that became the charity's first true headquarters. The charity used the building rent-free for over a decade until it outgrew the location and moved into the Wee Global Learning Center a few blocks away. Sotheby's estimated that over the years, Fred and Teresa could have rented the Cabbage Town property and a second building they also provided to Wee for about $5.4 million. The couple even refused to accept a tax receipt for their support to avoid the appearance of impropriety. This must have been a particularly bitter pill amid the swirling accusations about their private real estate transactions and how these transactions might somehow have benefited the family at the expense of the charity. Fred and Teresa's savvy investments also allowed them to support their sons even more directly. They bought Mark's and Craig's Toronto area homes and they continue to supplement their sons' relatively modest salaries to this day. There's no question this is a privilege that made it possible for Mark and Craig to accomplish a great deal. Few people have such a head start in life. But in my view, it was a privilege that indirectly benefited millions of young people in Canada and around the world through We Charities programming and support. I think this fact is too often forgotten by critics who, for their own purposes, seek to paint the Kilbergers and we as one and the same. Carrying Stories Home It did not take long for Free the Children to grow from those pizza parties 
to a force to be reckoned with. At one early speech to a large crowd of labor union supporters, Craig surprised even himself by raising $150,000 on the spot. Not a bad day's work for a 12-year-old, recognizing that his passion could translate into real results, he embarked on a fact-finding mission to South Asia without his parents, but with their blessings to better understand child labor. It was an epic trip that caught the imagination of children everywhere who wanted a say in solving the world's problems. But more than 25 years later, critics derisively reframed this trip as white saviorism. Back at home, Craig began to tell the harrowing stories of children he had met who were working in sweatshops or the sex trade. One eight-year-old girl in India had a job sorting used syringes from a local hospital. She squatted barefoot among the needles as they talked through an interpreter and said that nothing was done to protect her from contracting HIV or other diseases. Many people would have been ground down by the grim scenes Craig encountered on this trip, but he found hope and inspiration instead. They don't want to be seen as little creatures who need help, he told Yes Magazine, referring to the kids he met. The only gift you can give them in return for the time they spend with you is to carry their stories home. It was during that trip that Craig decided to devote his life to helping children from around the world tell their stories, as well as giving a voice to kids like him. This mission would grow into schools, water projects, farms and food security, income opportunity, and healthcare. In 1996, just a year into the life of Free the Children, Craig told his story to Ed Bradley on 60 Minutes, and things changed literally overnight. Strangers started showing up at the house in Thornhill asking how they could help. Clubs sprouted up at schools everywhere, and the volume of mail, media interest, and financial contributions was overwhelming. Free the Children was an organization that believed kids could help other kids, but it was still run by tweens. It's ironic that at a young age, Craig started a charity to end child labor, and in the process, he quickly became a workaholic child who took on tremendous responsibility. I don't know how much young Craig realized it then, but his life really would never be normal again. His school principal threatened to keep him behind in grade eight because of poor attendance. Fortunately, Craig found a high school that had an alternative program for students who needed to miss class, mostly for elite sports. During his second week there, a 60 Minutes television crew followed him into the cafeteria. Maybe that won him some friends, but it certainly led others to think he was full of himself. Later in life, Craig reflected on what he called the negative correlation between his charity success and his own sense of normalcy. I remember other kids in my class talking about Dawson's Creek. They could all relate to the characters and plots, he remembered, but I had no idea what it was. Until Netflix came around, there were all these series I had never heard of. 
I could tell you what the UN Secretary General had said at the latest Global Development Conference about establishing the Millennium Development Goals, but I couldn't name a single Top 40 song. He still can't. And he was and still is a straight arrow. I never wanted to bring any disrespect to the organization, so I have never been drunk in my life, never done drugs, never partied hard in the traditional sense. But that's the life you choose. And really, I didn't know any different. Craig's new high-profile life also stripped away other elements of childhood. Like so many kids, he'd had to deal with bullies in the playground. But now he had to face bigger and more powerful bullies. In 1996, the now-defunct Saturday Night Magazine ran a profile of him titled The Most Powerful 13-Year-Old in the World. It falsely alleged that his family was benefiting financially from his not-yet-registered charity, Free the Children. It also described Craig as a precocious, pubescent, who had learned to speak in almost perfect sound bites and noted that some cynical journalists had referred to him as Damien, the name of the evil child in the horror film The Omen. The article made no mention of Craig's speech impediment and the impact it might have had on his speaking style. While the personal criticism may have stung, the allegation of financial impropriety was something the Killbergers took a stand on. Craig sued the magazine, editor Kenneth White, and author Isabel Vincent for libel. Eventually, they consented to a judgment against them and paid a $319,000 settlement, which Craig invested in the growth of the nascent charity. But that money came at a price. This one suit, launched in 1996 and settled in 2000, created a perception that the Kilbergers are litigious, which may explain some of the problems they encountered in dealing with the media during the CSSG controversy. Mark, meanwhile, always played more of an operational role and claimed less of the limelight. In many ways, he was the polar opposite of his brother. He was the quintessential guy who excelled at everything, Craig recalled. He was on the rugby team, student council, editor of the school newspaper. He was popular and had a lot of friends. Some of Mark's early successes paved the way for Craig. For example, he won a Canada-wide science fair for creating recipes for eco-friendly cleaning products, earning himself accolades and media coverage across the country. In his late teens, he was selected to be a page in the House of Commons. Then he headed to Thailand to volunteer at a hospice for AIDS patients. Harvard University was next for him, studying international development. The university frothed with ideas and energy and privilege. But while his roommate used to fly off on a private jet for weekends in New York or the Caribbean, Mark took a weekly flight, economy of course, back to Toronto. Craig was still at home working his tail off on Free the Children, but he couldn't continue to build the charity alone, no matter how many high school classes he skipped. So Mark began to commute attending classes at Harvard on Monday through Wednesday, then flying home to work at Free the Children for the next four days. 
Even when he was at school, he would study until 7 or 8 p.m., then work on grant proposals and other paperwork until the wee hours of the morning. To a very real extent, he was squandering his chance at an Ivy League education to support a homegrown charity. I couldn't let go of either scenario, a vocation via Harvard or making the world better with my brother at my side, Mark later recalled. It was a lot, but I don't think I would have done it differently. It's not lost on me how privileged I am to do all of it. Despite his punishing schedule, he made it through Harvard and didn't just scrape by. He did well enough to earn a Rhodes Scholarship, which affords foreign students the chance to study at Oxford University in the UK. He chose to study law. At Oxford, it's possible to condense your academic year into three eight-week terms. This gave Mark the flexibility to continue working with Craig despite the ocean between them. Each term, he studied intensely for two months, then flew home to work at Free the Children for six weeks. In the end, he even managed to complete his three-year degree in two years by working 16-hour days. With his Oxford Law degree in hand and a Rhodes Scholarship on his resume, he was bombarded with job offers with great starting salaries, signing bonuses, and relocation expenses. He chose Free the Children, in part so Craig, who had already turned down the chance to go to an Ivy League school to keep the charity going, could attend university too. Their parents were worried they were gambling too heavily on Free the Children. The brothers were doubling down on a small charity that held little prospect of ever paying them a decent salary. Even if everything went right, it was hard to imagine that they would work there forever. Simple complexity. As a board member, I was frustrated by politicians, journalists, and pundits who insinuated and sometimes outright charged that the Kilbergers were engaged in various forms of self-dealing by supposedly using We Charity to further their own private financial interest. The theory was that the Kilbergers were using the charity to get rich through Me to We, which is a business they control, or that the purchase or sale of real estate assets by We Charity or Me to We conferred some direct or indirect financial benefit on them. On its face, the notion that Mark and Craig developed a Byzantine set of complex entities as a means to profit off the back of We Charity makes little sense. The Kilbergers are extremely accomplished and educated people who have demonstrated that they know how to build an organization, sell a vision, and court powerful people. If they had wanted to make loads of money and eat caviar on a private yacht, they could have taken lucrative private sector jobs and done just that. It is absurd to think that they instead decided to work 16-hour days for 25 years, spend hundreds of days per year apart from their families, and invest everything they had in building a global charity, all as a means to funnel money back to themselves. The concept becomes even more preposterous when you realize that the Kilberger family was wealthy to begin with, and Fred and Teresa provided millions of dollars of support to the charity. 
Still, We Charity's partnership with me to we and its real estate acquisition strategy, which I'll come back to later in the book, are subjects that were analyzed and dissected long before the CSSG scandal erupted. For almost a decade, We Charity's board understood that these topics warranted significant scrutiny and that potential conflicts of interest existed. With innovation comes questions. They should be asked, and they were asked, and answered definitively, repeatedly. It is hard to think of anything relating to we that has received more governance attention than these two issues. Nevertheless, much has been made of the confusion surrounding the charity the Kilbergers initially founded and the sprawling enterprise it became. I see the point, as I too have found it confusing at times and have struggled to come up with an elevator pitch that describes we. I will try to break it all down here and clear up any lingering misperceptions. Testimonial, Jerry Conley. Jerry Conley is the former director of education for the Toronto District School Board and the former director of the Curriculum and Assessment Policy Branch of the Ontario Ministry of Education. She served on the board of directors of We Charity Canada for over eight years and is currently the co-chair of We Charity Foundation. For almost five decades, I've worked in education as a teacher and administrator across Canada and the United States, and I've also advised on teaching and learning in the U.S., China, South Africa, and Estonia. I have had responsibility for ensuring that thousands of young people are inspired to learn and to become responsible and caring citizens, both locally and globally, with a commitment to equity and social justice. It was an amazing and humbling journey and a responsibility that I never took lightly. A highlight of my career has been my service since 2013 on We Charity's Canadian Board of Directors. During my time in education, I listened to the stories of students, teachers, and parents, and visited schools in Canada and other countries. I saw and heard firsthand the tremendous and positive impact We Charity had on teaching and learning and the education system as a whole. Nothing about the so-called We Charity scandal has shaken my faith in the charity and its co-founders. I know that as a board, we carefully vetted the operations, finances, and partnerships of the charity to make sure funds were directed to the right places, people, and causes. We asked hard questions about things like me to we and the charity's real estate acquisitions and decided that all of it was in the best interest of the charity and its beneficiaries. And I've traveled to the charity's international projects and witnessed the positive impact. Discrediting We Charity may have been the short-term goal of some politicians and journalists, but the long-term consequences will be a devastating loss for our children and those in the developing world. That is a tragedy. At the same time, I'm confident that the charity's work internationally will be carried forward through We Charity Foundation and will positively impact generations to come. I've stood with We Charity through it all, and I'm proud 
to still do so. Under the WE umbrella, there were only two entities that mattered, WE Charity and me to we WE Charity made no money because it was a nonprofit. References to it being paid for anything meant only that the charity received donations to fund its activities or cover reimbursements of expenses generated in connection with those activities. That was true for the agreement governing the CSSG and for every other contract that we charity ever entered into with any private or public entity. Me to we, meanwhile, was a social enterprise, i.e. a business with a social mission, focused on advancing the work of we charity through commercial initiatives. The two entities worked in harmony and operated under common branding. They were separate for legal reasons that I will explain in a moment. Like other global organizations, We Charity and Me to We also had affiliated entities in multiple countries to assist with operational controls, ensure compliance with local laws and customs, and meet requirements imposed by donors. But those entities were all part of either We Charity or Me to We. Their governance and financials were consolidated into either the charity or the social enterprise. And every entity was created and operated with advice from We Charity's lawyers, including those at Miller Thompson, LLP. We Charity had two streams, domestic programs focused on youth service learning and volunteerism and international development programs focused on helping to end poverty. These two streams were designed to support and complement each other. More youth engagement in North America, for example, created greater awareness of and support for issues in developing countries. Youth trips to We Villages sites helped bring international issues back to family dinner tables in North American homes. The volume of negative commentary directed at We Charity might lead people to think it was a fringe enterprise that had never been scrutinized until the CSSG brought its activities into the limelight. Nothing could be further from the truth. The charity was recognized for its work by various international bodies, including the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. It received funding from, among many others, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Trust, and the global accounting firm KPMG, all of which subjected the charity to a rigorous diligence process and significant reporting requirements. It received the Roosevelt Freedom Medal, the Nelson Mandela Human Rights Award, and the World's Children's Prize for the Rights of the Child, to name just a few. In 2017, Good Housekeeping magazine chose We Charity as the very first recipient of its new Good Housekeeping Humanitarian seal. It also got a four-star rating from Charity Navigator with a total score of 94.74 out of 100. Furthermore, independent third-party firms conducted annual audits of We Charity in Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., the organization always received an un 
qualified audit rating, meaning the auditors identified no concerns about financial accountability and transparency. But some people ask, didn't Me to We benefit from its co-branded relationship with We Charity? Yes, and as a result, the charity benefited even more. This is because Me to We was required to contribute at least 50% of its profits to We Charity. In reality, over the past five years, Me to We voluntarily passed on approximately 90% of its profits. So prior to COVID, when Me to We did well and was profitable, the charity was the beneficiary. Any additional profits were reinvested in the business so it could continue to grow and help advance the communal mission of both organizations. In essence, Me to We existed to help finance the activities of We Charity and to create jobs in overseas communities where the charity operated. Me to We made money by engaging in business activities, providing international travel experiences, and selling handcrafted jewelry and other fair trade products that supported We Charity's mission. The negative, and as we'll get to, politically motivated media coverage of this shady organization has also caused some to ask, hey, wait a minute, isn't this Me to We entity controlled by the Killburgers and others? And isn't it possible for the Killburgers to make money from it? Yes, the Killburgers and other social impact investors, including Jeff Skoll, have an equity stake in Me to We. There is nothing sinister or secret about this. Their financial stake gives them control over the social enterprise because they devote time and resources to running it. But in practice, and this is the most important part, the Kilbergers and other investors never took a dollar out of Me to We other than the brothers' relatively modest salaries. They chose not to benefit from owning Me to We and declined to receive dividends or distributions, choosing instead to donate the profits to We Charity or reinvest them in the social enterprise. The fact is, Me to We was born of legal necessity. Given their own formative experiences as teenagers, the Kilbergers saw volunteering in the developing world as an invitation to activism. In 1998, they wanted to start offering what they called service trips to young people who could learn about sustainable development and spend time working in international villages that were being supported by Free the Children. Fees from these trips would also provide a stable funding base for the charity's development work. This simple idea was not simple to execute. While social enterprise is a growing concept, Canada still draws sharp lines between traditional nonprofits and businesses, even when a business is really an enterprise with the same underlying mission as a charity. As a result, Canada has strict laws governing how charities can earn income. The Federal Income Tax Act, for example, restricts a charity's ability to sell products and services deemed an unrelated business. To be related, business activities must be both linked to the work of the charity 
and subordinate to that work. If a business gives its profits to the charity, that by itself is not a sufficient link. And if a business receives anything more than minor attention from the charity staff, then it is not sufficiently subordinate. On top of these federal restrictions, in 1999, when Medawee's predecessor business Leaders Today was established, Ontario law barred any charity incorporated in the province from owning a business. So in sum, legal restrictions prevented We Charity from selling volunteer trips or owning a business selling such trips. If We Charity tried to do these things, the Canada Revenue Agency could potentially deem such business unrelated to the work of the charity. That could result in the organization losing its charitable status, an unacceptable risk. But in other countries, the idea of using a for-profit business to fund charitable work is not unusual. Oxfam's storefronts have been a common sight across Europe for decades, and the housing nonprofit Habitat for Humanity opened its first restore in Georgia in 1976. The UK and a significant number of US states have modified their laws to make room for businesses with a mandate to produce returns in terms of social good rather than financial dividends. In the UK, these are called community interest companies, while Americans know them as beneficial corporations or B Corps. Me to We is a certified B Corp in the United States. When Me to We's predecessor was launched in 1999, the idea of social enterprise was still relatively new in Canada. The business was created under the supervision and vetting of an army of legal experts, including representatives from the Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee and the Ontario Ministry of the Attorney General. We wanted its new enterprise to be entirely above reproach. To fulfill the required laws, management and the board of directors decided that We Charity and Me to We would be separate entities operating under distinct and independent governance. To avoid brand confusion, the word charity was specifically baked into the name of the nonprofit entity. We Charity accepted donations and issued tax receipts. Me to We sold products and services. Me to We provided both cash and in-kind contributions to the charity helping to cover the cost of things like administrative support, rent, and shared staff. As a result, We Charity achieved a remarkable level of efficiency for the nonprofit sector, with only 10% of its general donations spent on administration cost. The average among U.S. charities of similar size is 25%. But Me to We offered an even greater benefit. It created employment for thousands of people in partner communities through its retail sales of fair trade chocolate and coffee and its Meadowee artisan line of handmade jewelry and other products. Meadowee also invested its capital to build eco-lodges 
near We Charity projects in rural India, Kenya, and Ecuador. These lodges hosted international visitors, allowing guests to see firsthand the development programs their donations were funding, which inspired even more donations to the charity. When guests see the projects and meet the people who are being supported, Robin Wizawadi explained, they are more willing to contribute and become part of the incredible impact. Ask the experts. To gain a further understanding of the interplay between charities and charity-driven businesses, I spoke with Bill Young, who according to some, is the granddaddy of social enterprise in Canada, although I doubt he likes the honorific. For over 20 years, Young has been plugged into entrepreneurship within the nonprofit sector, and it shows in how passionate he is about the work he does. I had planned to have an hour-long conversation with him, but at around the 45-minute mark, it became apparent to me that we had barely scratched the surface. In 2001, Young founded Social Capital Partners, an enterprise that provides financing and advisory services to businesses with social missions built into their operations. Young also sits on the boards of a variety of social enterprises and has received the Order of Canada for his achievements as an entrepreneur, and he has served on social finance task forces for the Canadian government. He explained to me that Canada makes it very hard to run a business that has an underlying charitable mission. This is a problem, and Young has been leading the movement for reform for years. The core issue, he told me, is that CRA requirements make it difficult to be innovative in this field when it comes to charitable work. Our regulatory environment doesn't understand hybrid organizations when you're trying to figure out how to generate revenue in a way that allows you to have more impact, he explained. Any combination of market forces and doing good has forced a bunch of us in this space to end up organized in a far more complicated way than we would ever, ever have wanted. Young's comments invite the broader question of whether Canadians view exceptionalism in business or the charitable sector as a virtue or a vice. In the U.S., exceptionalism is a valued part of self-identity. Americans see themselves as entrepreneurial by nature and have always held business visionaries in high esteem. In Canada, by contrast, exceptionalism is most frequently lauded when it involves being better than other countries at handling social problems. Think climate change, universal health care, or the cultural mosaic. But there is limited dialogue regarding the value of exceptionalism in business. For example, pride in making more things, building smarter and more creative companies, and adopting innovative approaches to solving problems. At some level, I believe the disconnect between Wee's approach of using innovation to achieve social impact and the traditional ways in which many Canadians think about exceptionalism is partly to blame for how readily 
the public assumed, without any evidence, that we and the Kilbergers were up to no good. Despite the efforts, we charity and meter we made to be transparent and comply with the law, novelty is sometimes misunderstood. Donors and corporate partners expected and deserved to have confidence that their contributions were being put to appropriate use. And we charities directors wanted to make sure that everything about the relationship between the charity and the social enterprise was above board and consistent with the mission of the charity. To accomplish this, the organization periodically retained independent experts to review its structure and accounting operations, as well as the board's oversight. In 2011, for example, the Honorable Peter Corey, a former Supreme Court Justice, conducted two independent reviews. One pertained to the relationship between the charity and the social enterprise and their governance structures. In that case, Justice Corey concluded that the entities were conducting their affairs openly and in compliance with their respective organizational structures and mandates. The second was a review of the charity's real estate acquisitions between 2006 and 2011 and the board's governance practices during this period. His conclusions were that purchasing real estate has greatly helped to forward the mission and effectiveness of the work of the organization and that the board provided sufficient oversight of the purchases. In 2018 and 2019, the Honorable Stephen Gouge, who had served on the Ontario Court of Appeals for over 15 years, was retained to conduct a number of independent assessments, including one focused on the co-founders' compensation, the charity's reporting protocols, and the relationship between the charity and Teresa and Fred Kilberger. The report confirmed that no improper transactions took place. Gouge also noted that MeToo's accountants state that MeToo has never distributed dividends and that neither Mark nor Craig Kilberger has received any form of salary from We Charity or its predecessor, Free the Children. He even reviewed Mark and Craig's T4 filings and reported that they were both paid $113,461 in 2017 and $125,173 in 2018. The salaries of both brothers were paid by me to we. I had the opportunity to speak with Gouge and discuss his experience working with We Charity and its co-founders in preparing his reports. He stands squarely behind the conclusions he reached and said he had no reason to doubt the co-founders' integrity. Was I ever constrained in the information that I thought I needed to prepare the reports? The answer is no. I have never had any impression of the Kilbergers other than that these are highly ethical people who just want to help the world. As the organization expanded more heavily into the U.S., it commissioned a similar independent review in 2018 by Scott McCallum, a university professor, the CEO of a global technology nonprofit 
and the former governor of Wisconsin. McCallum was not involved with We Charity or Me to We and had never met the Kilbergers. He was asked to examine the impact of Me to We's social enterprise model and assess whether the co-founders of We Charity received any undue benefit. He concluded that neither Mark Kilberger nor Craig Kilberger receives any undue financial benefit from We Charity or Me to We Social Enterprise. As if all this wasn't enough, in the wake of the We Charity scandal and the tsunami of negative mainstream and social media coverage, the Kilbergers voluntarily subjected their personal and business financial information and that of their spouses to a comprehensive forensic review by Ken Froze and his team at Froze Forensic Partners, one of Canada's largest independent financial investigation firms. Froze is an expert in forensic accounting and has been hired by police forces, governments, media outlets, and companies of all sizes. Because I conduct internal investigations concerning alleged financial fraud and litigate related disputes for a living, I often work with forensic accountants. Froze and I speak the same language. Although I have never previously dealt with him, I consulted with many lawyers who praised his work and reputation. After interviewing him twice for this book, I can tell you that he is serious-minded, careful, and a straight shooter. He agreed to go on the record only on the condition that no topic would be off-limits. It was important to him and to me that he be able to speak openly about both his investigative process and his findings. The Kilbergers were required to consent to this and did. Froze explained to me that he and a team of six investigators spent over a thousand hours across a two-month period reviewing financial records for all WE entities in Canada, including WE Charity, WE Charity Foundation, and Me to WE, as well as the records of the Kilbergers and their spouses. The mission was to uncover any evidence of self-dealing by the Kilbergers or their family members. The process included investigative research into corporations and properties potentially owned by the Kilbergers, and a search for any potential benefits to the brothers, their families, or the companies they control based on property improvements, operating costs such as property taxes, insurance and utility payments, personal expenses or benefits such as concierge services, nanny services, food and clothing, entertainment, travel, and similar potential benefits. Froze's people had unrestricted access to Wee's accounting systems, corporate credit cards, and real estate transaction files for all properties held by Wee Charity, Me to Wee, and any other Wee entities. They had the same unrestricted access to personal bank accounts, credit card statements, and real estate transactions of the Kilbergers and their spouses, including the prices at which properties were bought and sold. The investigators 
also imaged the full contents of the brothers' computers, cell phones, and communication apps, and ran keyword searches to test the veracity and completeness of the information provided. And for good measure, they imaged the devices of Wee's CFO, Victor Lee, and investigated all of his personal transactions, real estate holdings, private companies and investments, and even a company operated by his wife. The investigation team included an accountant who had worked with the Ontario Provincial Police, a criminologist, and a bank fraud expert. They determined what information had to be reviewed, not the Kilbergers or anyone associated with we. The hope was that this investigation could set the record straight once and for all. Froze told me that he came to the project with some suspicion and wanted to make sure he covered every angle. He'd had no prior dealings with we or the Kilbergers and knew little about the organization other than it was a hot topic in the press. Where do the Kilbergers bank? Where do they spend money? What do real estate transaction files obtained directly from law firms show? Froze and team dove into each of these questions. I asked him if there was any information he'd asked for that he did not receive. He said no. He'd received full cooperation and transparency. In the end, his report was clear and unequivocal in its conclusions. We found no evidence of improper financial benefits to the Kilbergers from We Charity, M2WSE, Me to We Social Enterprise, or any We Canada entity, the report read. We found no evidence of improper transactions which benefited the Kilbergers personally. Froze told me the same was true of Victor Lee. Froze also found that the salaries paid to the Kilbergers from we entities at its high point, approximately $140,000 to each Mark and Craig from me to we were not inconsistent with their positions or qualifications. Closed book, right? Unfortunately not. In the months that followed, politicians and journalists advanced narratives filled with so many falsehoods that a lot of Canadians came to believe that something underhanded was going on. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.